Good evening. Can you hear me okay? Great. My name is Peter Lee, and I'm a member of Woodside Community Church. And some of you might may be familiar with one of my pastors, Matthew Shores, who will be preaching here in a few weeks. Now, I have never come to Levittown Baptist Church for a Sunday morning service. I do not live anywhere close to Levittown. And I think I've spoken at most once or twice with uh, some of you. But I am connected to, and I dare I say, even indebted to Levittown Baptist Church in various ways. First off, I went to college with Alice and Teresa. And Teresa was one of the first people who invited me to hear the gospel and evangelize to me. And I praise and I thank God for her. And on top of that, well, you can't really top that, but also very importantly, I met my wife here two years ago at a Wednesday night worship service, even though neither of us were members here. On Wednesday, August 25th, 2021, Matthew came here to preach uh, to the then Gateway uh, Church Long Island to preach and asked me to tag along. After the sermon, during the Q&A, a beautiful young lady raised her hand and asked an expositional and very difficult question. And that's when I knew this is no mere mortal. She is no ordinary woman. Uh, we were, uh, Matthew uh, commented a remark afterwards, and I quote, See, Peter, cute, young, single Christian ladies are everywhere. Uh, we were able to reconnect. Uh, at North Shore Baptist Church, and praise God, we got married last year, and our first girl is on the way. So, thank you. So, saints, I want you to know, uh, the reason why I'm telling you this is uh, for two reasons. Number one, uh, your elders, your pastors are most likely correct, even when they sound absolutely ridiculous. And the second thing I wanted to know is we sometimes just have no idea what wonderful works God is doing in our midst until sometime later. Expect great things from God whenever you gather as a church, and that is what we're doing here tonight, this evening, and it's my joy and privilege to serve you and preach God's word to you. So with that said, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into the, into the text. Let's pray. Lord, you have called us together, and you have called us together this evening for the specific purpose of worshiping you, to give you the glory you rightly deserve, to pay the praise and the tribute of praise to your name and the name of Christ Jesus uh, that rightly due to you. Lord, we ask you this evening as we gather not to hear the mere words of men, but the word of the living God. I pray that you will administer timely comfort to your saints. I pray that if there be any unbelievers in this room, I pray that by the means of the preaching of your life-giving word, dead souls will be raised to life, darkened minds will be enlightened, blinded eyes will be opened, deaf ears will be unstopped. I pray that marvelous things will be done this evening in this room in the name of Jesus Christ. I pray that he will be glorified he will be exalted, and all the eyes will look unto him and be saved, we pray. Amen. This sermon is about facing affliction and grief. 
There's never a wrong season of speaking about affliction because every season is a season of affliction for some people in the church. Even if you're not currently in the midst of a trial, you may look back in your life and see that you have been in one season of affliction. Or better yet, right, you may be going into a trying season in the future. Uh, wherever you are, hopefully our text tonight will help you to bring you comfort and strength for every trial. Now, there is never a shortage of ways to address grief because the Bible is full of texts helping, comforting, and promising to believers great things in the midst of their grief. Let me tell you just a few more things about this sermon before getting into our text tonight. You need to know that this sermon is not a topical sermon. In other words, I am not just talking about suffering uh, by looking at, uh, based on life experience or general scriptural wisdom. I'm not just talking about suffering in general. I'm talking about suffering by looking at a particular text of the Bible. So there will be heavy exegesis and interpretation in the sermon. Uh, you should know that this is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's not a weakness or inefficiency of the sermon. That is not a hindrance to facing grief. Reading the Bible, understanding the Bible is never irrelevant. It's helpful, even for people who are steep in grief. And you should also know that this sermon is not a counseling session, which means I can't listen to you, but you have to listen to me for some 15 minutes. And I hope I'll be interesting and helpful enough to make this uh, one-way communication less miserable and more desirable to your ears. It also means I cannot possibly address particularly every single situation present in this room, but I am addressing every single person and every situation in this room altogether. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said this about preaching. It is quite astonishing to find that in expounding the scriptures, you're able to deal with a variety of differing conditions altogether in one service. That's what I mean by saying it saves the pastor a lot of time. If he had to see all these people one by one, his life would be impossible. But in one sermon, he can cover quite a number of problems at one and the same time. So remember, just because I am not saying your name or calling out your specific trial you're going through, that doesn't mean I'm not speaking to your situation. I may, know, I may not know all of you, but my prayer and desire is to contend for your spiritual good and bring timely comfort from God's word to you this evening. So feel free to read yourself into this sermon. And finally, you should know that this sermon is not necessarily going to make everything magically get better. If you have ever preached or taught any Bible study at home or at church, or if you have ever evangelized to anyone, you surely know how powerless our words are to change someone. Far less a thorny situation that has been a source of seemingly endless grief. So this sermon does not guarantee everything will be smooth sail for you and you will never feel the bitter sting of sorrow anymore. But at the same time, you must also bear in mind, we're not here to listen to my words, are we? Though this sermon today may not heal you, the word of God you listen to today will. So again, expect God to do great things today. 
John Calvin, he wrote in his commentary on the book of Psalms, I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are prone to be agitated. So now, shall we bring these distracting emotions into focus and hear the words of hope from the God of all comfort? So if you have the physical copy of the Bible with you, please turn to the 34th Psalm. We'll be in verse 19. <coughs> the 34th Psalm, verse 19. Again, Psalm 34, verse 19. Let me read the text for you, and please pay close attention to this verse, because this is the word of God. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. This verse has two halves, and so I want to draw your attention to two things from this verse. First is the problem. It amazes me just how the Bible always so simply yet profoundly describes our problem. With no sugarcoating nor exaggeration, just the problem as it is. And secondly, point number two is the promise. Uh, the Bible is not afraid of taking on great problems in the human experience. It does not shy away from difficult matters. Great problems require great solutions. The great solution we have today is a great promise from God. So two simple points for you this evening, the problem and the promise. So let's begin with point number one, the problem. What is the problem in view in the text? Well, it's in the first half of verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. It's a short sentence, but it's a sentence with great depth and sympathy. So let's focus on three things in this part of the verse. Number one, consider who it is that the psalmist speaks of here. Consider who it is that the psalmist speaks of here. It is the righteous. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. What about Romans 3.10? None is righteous. No, not one. So I guess this verse, Psalm 34, 19, doesn't really apply to anyone since no one is righteous and God only delivers the righteous, right? So we're hopelessly lost here. Well, you need not fear that you are not perfectly righteous and you still sin. Look at the title of the psalm. I don't mean the ESV title. I mean the small font-sized font size words underneath the ESV title. Now look at the title of the psalm. Who wrote this psalm? Of David, right? When did he write this psalm? When he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. This is during a time when he was murderously pursued by Saul. So when David wrote verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, he is talking more than just himself, but he is definitely, definitely not talking about less than himself. He is counting himself. As a righteous man. Verse 19 says, God delivers the righteous. 
And then look at verse 4. David wrote this about himself. I saw the Lord. He answered me and delivered me. God delivered the righteous and God delivered me from my, all my fears. Verse 15. Verse 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the, the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Uh, and verse 6. David spoke of, uh, about himself. The righteous cried. This poor man, David, cried. And the Lord heard him, David. God heard the righteous. God heard David. David is counting himself as a righteous man. So David is extending and applying his personal experience to all righteous men. Now, David, how can you count yourself as a righteous man? How dare you? You committed adultery with Bathsheba. You murdered her husband Uriah. How can you count yourself a righteous man? How can you put yourself in that category? Well, David, well, the answer is, is threefold. One, David is actually blameless and righteous in the matter of Saul, which is the context of this psalm. Two, David has sinned, that's true, but the general trajectory of his, and the record of his life is largely that of godliness and righteousness. He is not a perfect man, but he is a godly, pious, and God-fearing man. And thirdly, of course, David is counted by God as righteous through faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of David. Now, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because it is quite easy uh, for us to read these psalms and say to ourselves, well, I'm not the righteous, or well, I'm not David, and so this psalm doesn't really apply to me. Well, in a sense, you're right. None of us are David, and none of us are righteous perfectly, but insofar as this psalm is concerned, there's no difference. You suffer just as innocently as David. Your life is overall characterized as one of godliness as much as they David's life. And you certainly share the same faith in Christ through which you are justified before God just as much as David. And so in, in this psalm, in particular verse 19, this verse we just read, that verse is about you and that verse is for you. And so we can draw three implications from this fact that this verse is about the righteous in Christ. And first of all, the obvious implication is this. To those of you who are apart from Christ this evening, this verse is not for you. I say this not with a sense of pride or gloating. I say this rather with grief and sadness. I, I, could, not, I could not be more glad and thankful to God who brought you here this evening. But the majority of this text, and as a result, the majority of the sermon is not directly applicable to you. Please don't walk away with the comfort that is not for you. I think all is well for you. This promise is not for you, and this promise is not just therapeutic to make yourself feel better. Many may indeed be your afflictions. This part of the text may, be, may, may apply to you, but the promise of deliverance and comfort we're getting to, the second part of the text, that is not for you. But maybe, paradoxically, the sermon is for you because I'm going to tell you how you can become the righteous so that you may indeed obtain the promise of comfort and affliction. At this moment, you may be outside of the blessing, but maybe through the means, the very means of hearing God's word this evening, even as you walk out 
from this church today, you are changed into a new man, and this promise will be rightly yours. So don't check out just yet. Now, the second implication is equally important, and now I speak to the saints here who have been purchased and redeemed by Christ. To you, I say, never ever for any reason, under any circumstances, not for a single minute, forget what God sees when he sets his eyes upon you. You are the righteous. You are very pleasant, and you are very precious in his eyes. You must know, and you must keep this in central vision, that God takes pleasure and finds the light in you. God takes pleasure and finds the light in you. You, a mere mortal, someone not so famous, someone not so strong, someone not so wealthy, you gladden and rejoice his heart. Well, I, I don't yet hold my baby girl. She's still kicking about in her mother's womb. I cannot even imagine how happy I'm going to be. But that pleasure and that happiness of seeing your child falls infinitely, infinitely short of God's gladness in seeing you. Psalm 33, verse 5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And you who have trusted in Christ, you are loved, you are cherished, you are treasured by God. Does that not cheer your faint and feeble heart? Does that not uplift your downcast and distressed spirit? Does that not satisfy and strengthen your troubled and tumultuous soul? When Hannah was weeping in the temple, you remember Elkanah, her husband, said this, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Brothers, is not the love of God more to you than all the sorrows of this world? And now, lastly, related to this point, the third implication from this phrase, the righteous, we must conclude from this very verse addressing the righteous that not all afflictions are God's retribution and revenge for sin. All afflictions are from God, but not all afflictions from God come, come from a heart of wrath and fury. Right? For the simple reason that God loves the righteous all the time but he sends them tribulations, trials, and troubles nonetheless. We must not make the errors of Job's friends. There is no one-to-one strict correspondences and causality between sin and suffering. David's suffering in the hands of Saul, that has nothing whatsoever to do with his sin. If anything, it was because of his righteousness he was pursued and persecuted. Your situation may be tough, your trial may be hard, but you have not lo- lost God's love and pleasure. Right? God does not play tit-for-tat with his people. And there's an equally powerful temptation, and it is this. You're having a rough time, 
you know you're having a rough time. You have not been responding to the Lord well. Uh, maybe you are bitter or angry or jealous or complaintful. Uh, you know you have not been responding well. And then you begin to think, maybe God is going to just prolong this trial and lengthen my pain just to smite me and spite me. Be watchful, brothers. And remember, God loves the righteous and God loves you in Christ. And that's the first considerations. The first of our considerations, it is the righteous in Christ that are in view in our text. Number two. Let's consider what is being emphasized about the righteous. We looked at the righteous. That's the people we're talking about here. Now let's consider what is being emphasized about the righteous. And that is uh, their afflictions. Verse 19. <coughs> Many are the afflictions of the righteous. A brief word on, on the word uh, afflictions referred to here. If you read books 1 and 2 of Psalms, you will see a lot of Psalms where the psalmist uh, see God's protection from the wicked persecutors and haters. In other words, their afflictions come mostly from religious persecution. But the beauty of this psalm, the beauty of this psalm is its vagueness. It's never said explicitly what these afflictions are exactly. Our psalm uses some very inclusive and general words like fears, troubles, and afflictions. It could be about anything. In other words, the scope of the psalm is not narrowly restricted to one thing, but general and wide. And the reason why I'm telling you this is very simple. We as readers of this psalm in 21st century America, free from religious persecution, but still faced with common human sufferings and fears, we can still freely apply this psalm to ourselves. We need not have a sense of distance with the psalmist's experience, and so we need not uh, hesitate to take hold of the promise herein. Now, verse 19 is also freeing and relieving, not just because it includes broad human uh, suffering in general, like we can, we can apply this psalm freely to ourselves. It is also freeing, comforting, and relieving in another important sense, and it is this. There's a strange notion among believers that Christians should not be grieved and troubled by afflictions. Even if they are, they need to handle it well with pure joy and complete victory. And when the sorrow doesn't go away, when the grief deepens and decides to take up residence in the heart, uh, then a sense of guilt and perplexity uh, emerges. If I'm a Christian, why, why am I depressed? If God is on our side, shouldn't Christian people deal with every trial with this complete joy and unwearying strength? If God calls us to rejoice, and I say it again, rejoice, I must be doing something wrong if I feel sad or if I have prolonged grief in me. And as you can probably tell, guilt is not a good catalyst for the joy for which God prepares us. You may sincerely believe Christians should not be bothered by grief at all, and prolonged grief is a sign of weakness or lack of faith or immaturity 
Or you may agree with, with everything I'm saying theoretically, but functionally, when grief strikes, you are just as guilt-written and confused. Verse 19. Verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Being a Christian doesn't make you superhuman. Regeneration doesn't somehow make you immune to the distress and the, and the adversity of life. Right? Conversion doesn't deprive you of ordinary human experience. The righteous Job, he suffered and he wept. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. Dramatic much? Right? The righteous David suffered and wept. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Dramatic much. The righteous Jesus suffered and cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So be not harsh to yourself, because verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Being a Christian doesn't make you sorrow-free, but here is the, is the good news of consolation. Being a born-again Christian puts you in a position, the only position, where you may truly rejoice and be glad, where you have all the resources and the ability to overcome affliction and face grief for God's glory and your own eternal good. If you are not a Christian, you cannot even begin to rejoice truly and, and, and lastingly. Right? But if you are a Christian, then you have all you need to rejoice, even if it may not seem like it. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. And that's the second of our considerations. The righteous alongside with the unrighteous, they're often afflicted. It is but the common lot God assigns to all men. And number three, the last thing we'll consider in this part of the verse, consider what it is said about these afflictions of the righteous. Consider what is said about these afflictions of the righteous. That is, they are many. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. What an unfortunate word. He could have said, the righteous have afflictions in this world. He could have said, several are the afflictions of the righteous. He could have said, oh, the righteous people, you will have your fair share of grief in this world. He just has to say, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Job 14, one man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. Ecclesiastes 2.23, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation even in the night his heart does not rest this also is vanity many are the afflictions of the righteous and the afflictions of the righteous are many in variety just go through the bible some lost their young children to death see the widow in luke 7 some could not conceive a child see hannah some have disobedient children and that cause endless grief. See Eli and Samuel. Some suffered poverty all their lives. See John the Baptist. Some had their great wealth stripped away from them. See Job. Some were persecuted and killed for their faith. See the apostles and the prophets. Some suffered chronic disease. Uh, see Paul. Some were perfectly healthy and their health suddenly broke down. 
See Job again. Some were exiled and carried away to another country, never to return. See Daniel. Some married fools. See Abigail. Some were unjustly treated in the family. See Joseph. Some were betrayed by companions and friends. See David. Some were distrusted and opposed by the elites and nailed to a cross. See Jesus. Or some of you may have frustrating jobs or frustrating children or stubborn parents. Some of you may be growing weaker and ill. Some of you may have unfulfilled legitimate desires and expectations. Some of you may have lost family to death, the king of terror. Some, and some of you just have a hard life. And that is God's lot for you in this life. Some of you have lost joy. And you don't even know where, like, where to begin to, to, to find it, to get it back. Right? Proverbs 14.10 the heart knows its bitterness, no stranger shares its joy. The afflictions of the righteous are many in variety. The afflictions of the righteous are many also in number. Count your afflictions, name them one by one, and then you lose count at some point. It's more than you, can, you care to number. They're great in number. They're great in number at the same time. You will love to take on all these troubles of life one by one, but they come at you all together. Or maybe you will love to take on them one by, all at the same time, but they come one by one, one after another, in rapid succession. You just want to breathe a couple of peaceful days. The afflictions of the righteous are many also in its effect. You have broken down into tears. You have laid sleepless at night. You have nightmares uh, that leave you shook in the morning. You're weighed down and overcome by emotions. You carry a great burden wherever you go. You have grown weary and languished. You have no appetite. Uh, you have not called your family in a while. You go through the motion and nothing excites or moves you anymore. You talk less or not at all. You talk a lot to some people but they have trouble understanding, sympathizing, or relating to you. You pray, oh, but nothing changes. So you wonder what God is really doing at this time. You hang on by a thread, a thin thread. You see no joy and no meaning in life, and you ponder whether it's time to end it somehow. Despair, anxiety, dull grief, and hopelessness describe and characterize you more and more. You start to envy other people uh, because you think they had it easy. Uh, you wish you could be someone else. Paradoxically, uh, you think about the bitterness of life habitually as if, and regularly as if it is something enjoyable. It's an enjoyable experience worth revisiting once in a while. <clears throat> You're confused. You don't know what is happening to you. You were, not, you were never like this before. Verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Is there a better way to put it? Praise God, this verse does not end here. And so our, uh, our afflictions uh, don't end here. And so our sermon does not end here. Point number two. I will not send you away grieved uh, with the problem. But I will end with point number two, the promise. <clears throat> the promise. Verse 19. 
Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. Let's again focus on three things uh, to impress this great and comforting promise to our mind. Let me help you appreciate this verse a little more deeply. You might have read this verse before. You, maybe you just uh, you know, passed through this verse very quickly. But let me slow you down and explain this verse a little bit more to you. Number one, let's consider, let's consider who it is that brings relief to the suffering saints. Let's consider who it is that brings relief to the suffering saints. It's the Lord. Verse 19. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Lord is a deliverer who delivers us from our afflictions. And we must start from here. Because this is the head or the rudder that will keep the rest of the ship moving in the right direction. This is the cornerstone that will keep the rest of the building upright and strong. Always remember this. Your relief and your comfort are going to come from nowhere else but the Lord. You look at the wrong place and you look for ineffective remedies when you look away from or apart from the Lord for help. My wife and I have a couple friends, husband and wife. We love them a great deal, and we, we would drive two hours to see them once in a while. They're big on, on mental health issues, finding a, a Christian therapist, uh, traveling and vacationing together. But they don't go to church. But they don't read the Bible together. Uh, they have no consistent presence of wise and mature Christians near them to counsel and care for them. So we pray for them every Saturday night and more that they will go to church. Uh, they will stay in church and they will be helped by the church. Maybe you do need to find a professional Christian counselor. Maybe you do need to get out of the house and go somewhere once in a while. Maybe you even need to take medication. But make no mistake, your help comes from the Lord. None of these things can replace or substitute him. You, you cannot see a Christian counselor or vacation or take medication and then you forget about the Lord. Look to God and if needed, use other legitimate means. Look to the means but do not look apart from the good giver of these means. Now let me tell you a bit more about this Lord. This is really the most important part of the sermon. Let me tell you a little bit more about this God. I want to tell you a few reasons why God is the only effective Savior. This is the most important part of the sermon that you should pay attention because I am going to paint a grand picture of God for you. The clearer and the bigger your vision of God is, and it can never be too clear or too big. Right, the, mo the more comfort that this promise affords. Spurgeon famously said he has learned to kiss every wave uh, that throws him up against the rock of ages. So let me point you now to that rock of ages in whom you can take refuge. First of all, this God is sovereign. This God is sovereign. Nothing comes to pass without God and his explicit decree, design, and approval, according to his goodwill and pleasure. 
In other words, every affliction, every affliction in life comes from God. You need to know that, and God wants you to know that. Lamentation 3.21, For the Lord will not cast out forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion. Count your afflictions, name them one by one, count your afflictions, and see what God has done. And well, how is this comforting? Well, it's comforting because you are not just a victim. There is an Iraq war veteran at our church who suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder. <clears throat> I had the joy and the privilege of knowing and befriending him. He's a lovely brother. His life has been marked with his own sins and the sins of others against him. <clears throat> he came to me on Sunday, last Sunday, and he said, one of the most valuable lessons he learned from this verse is that he is not just a victim. And it had been so easy for him to wallow in victimhood and complain and forget the goodness of God's sovereignty. Life has not dealt with him fair, life has not dealt with him unfairly, and there is no reason to complain. I think he's exactly right. You could be a victim. You could very well be at the receiving end of someone else's sin against you. But you are not just a victim. No Christian is purely or simply a victim under God's good sovereignty. We're always, we're always beneficiaries in one way or another from God's sovereign hand. It is comforting that God is sovereign because God is always in control. The train has not gone off the rails and the ship has not deviated from its de designated route. This trouble has come from the Lord, and so from the Lord alone does the final and ultimate resolution come. And trust me, it does come. And secondly, God is sovereign. God is also omnipotent. God is omnipotent. We like to scoff at a can-do attitude. No need to scoff here. God can do. There's no affliction that is beyond the power of God to bring to an end. There is no pain too overwhelming, overpowering in you for him to relieve. And there is no sin so hideous and so grievous for him to forgive you in Christ Jesus. Your problem, your grief, your affliction may be too great and too powerful for you. It may be taking up your whole world and that is the only thing you can see at this very moment, feel, and set your mind on. But it's not so with the Lord. It doesn't take up all of his world. It is not the only, it's not the only thing he can see or think or set his mind upon. At this very moment, while you are sitting here listening and pondering, he is upholding the universe by the word of his power. He is watching over the smallest sparrow, sustaining the most repulsive pigeons, and supplying the needs of the weakest worm of the earth. He is also tenderly and gently preserving your life and granting you all things good and needed at this very moment. You need to know how, just how great and how powerful this God is, especially in the time of trouble and the day of sorrow. And number three, thirdly, 
God is compassionate. You need to know God is compassionate. Strength is necessary, but strength is not sufficient. Have you met someone who helped you with something, but he helped you with an attitude of frustration and arrogance? You have, because I have, and I've helped others in that way before. The weeping and grieving saints may appreciate the solution to their trials, but they absolutely need compassion, grace, and kindness. And you need not fear, because God is omnipotent and God is tender-hearted. My wife and I like this song, <clears throat> "Jesus Strong and Kind." I think you guys sing this song as well here. A combination—that's a combination you don't see often every day. We listen to it in the car sometimes, and I'm often moved by this song. It says, "Jesus said that if I thirst, I should come to Him. No one else can satisfy. I should come to Him." Jesus said, "If I am weak, I should come to Him, and no one else can be my strength. I should." Come to him, Jesus said that if I fear, I should come to him. No one else can be my shield. I should come to him. Jesus said that if I am lost, he will come to me, and he showed me on that cross. He will come to me, for the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus, strong and kind. You have a Very powerful Savior, and He is also very kind. And fourthly, God is also imminent. God is imminent,、uh, meaning God is near to us. There is an ever-present temptation for saints in distress. They're apt to think、uh, God is very far.、Uh, God has distanced Himself from us.、Uh, God has left us in this in this big mess. But that's not true. Now、look at the verse right before our text. Look at verse eighteen. Look at verse eighteen. <clears throat> the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Isaiah forty-three verse two: When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Deuteronomy thirty-one six: It is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you. Or forsake you. God is not distant in suffering, as some believe Him to be. The Bible even goes so far as to say it is as if He Himself suffers in their suffering. Isaiah sixty-three verse nine. In all their afflictions, He was afflicted. Maybe there's a passing cloud, but the sun is still bright. The sun is still there. The sun has not gone anywhere just because there are gloomy clouds. You all know that. You don't go out and see the clouds and you say the sun is no more. In the same way, your God is ever near you. And fifthly and finally, you need to know that God is faithful. God is faithful. God said here something really big, really grand. He said he will deliver you from all your afflictions. How shall we know it's true? What、well, we know, because he has already given us a token of his love, a testimony of salvation, and a proof of his comfort for us. And here is the proof: he saved us. And if you are apart from Christ, 
this evening, I speak to you now as well. You should pay attention because this is the only way for you to be righteous, the only way for you to inherit this great promise of comfort and pain and sorrow. God has saved sinners like you and me, and that's how we know he will deliver us from all our troubles. He has saved sinners like you and me. We were all born in, in sin and brought forth in iniquities. We were entangled in transgressions and by nature children of wrath. We neither love the Lord our God with all our hearts, nor do we love our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, we, we worship ourselves. We, we are consumed with our selfish interests. We're, we're obsessed with ourselves. Uh, we, we love ourselves above God and everything else. The wages of sin is death. And the end of such a way of life, of selfishness and self-worship, is eternal destruction. But God, when we were afflicted with wrath and judgment in this life, he sent forth his son in the person of Jesus Christ. Like us, Jesus was, was human, a truly human, born, from a, born of a virgin under God's law. But unlike us, Jesus never sinned. He is righteous in and of himself. Not only is he righteous, he said he came not to be served, but, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. On the cross, he bore our iniquities on his shoulders and owned up to our sins. He stood in our place and he substituted for us. God's wrath was unleashed upon him on our behalf. Our sin and death were given to him and, and, and his righteousness and life are given to us. And on the third day after his death and his burial, Jesus rose triumphantly from the grave because death cannot take hold of him. Jesus rose triumphantly from the grave and he proclaimed forgiveness of sin everywhere so that if anyone, young or old, male or female, Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, great sinners or little sinners, if anyone should repent of their sins and trust in him and his finished work, that person will be saved. The debt of sin is canceled. The reward of eternal life is freely bestowed. This is God's token of love. He who delivered you from sin and hell, he will still deliver you from all troubles of life. He delivered you from the biggest, the grandest trouble possible. Will he not also deliver you from earthly sorrow and pain? Well, consider then where your help must come from. It comes from the Lord, the sovereign, the omnipotent, the compassionate, the imminent, and the faithful God. He is a very sufficient Savior for you. Now, number two, consider, consider what it is the Lord will do for you. That is, God will deliver you. God will deliver you. Verse 19. <clears throat> Look at verse 19. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. You need to have the sure expectation that God will deliver you in the hardest of days and the darkest of nights. This is not wishful thinking or daydreaming at all. If I said it, then that would be wishful thinking. But God said it. Uh, that is called faith. 
Uh, God is pledging here uh, through his word that he absolutely will deliver. Deliver you from whatever trouble and trials that seem just impossible for you right now. Again, that's not wishful thinking. That is called faith. What is the gift of faith for if it's not for moments like this? You can and you must boldly take hold of this promise and tell yourself, or really let the word of God tell you that God will deliver you from all of your trials. Now, a few things to be, to be mindful of. First of all, about deliverance. First of all, you need to be mindful of the possible forms of deliverance from God. There's not one way of deliverance. God does not deliver everyone from every trouble in the exact same manner. God could, could bring a complete end to your affliction by giving you exactly what you want at his appointed time. For example, Hannah was barren. And she was painfully mocked by her rivals. She was grieved for childlessness. How did God deliver her? Well, by giving her many children. Right? You may want to marry, find a job, or have children, and God can deliver you by giving you these things at his time. Exactly what you want. But that is not the only way of deliverance. I think sometimes we think this is the only way or the best way of deliverance or happiness and that we're reluctant to take from God or to receive from God any other forms of deliverance. But God can also strengthen your faith and give you comfort so sufficient uh, for, the, for every day uh, that the affliction no longer triggers and brings much sorrow anymore. Or it is entirely possible that God could let you battle it out with the afflictions for the rest of your life on this side of eternity. While you battle, he always gives grace and strength sufficient for that day to get through, and he brings the sweetest and the ultimate deliverance on the last day in glory. Revelation 20, verse 1. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I would like to think or speculate, some of these saints, they cried all the way to glory. And when the divine hand touched them, sorrow becomes foreign, grief becomes distant, pain is bygone, and they weep no more. Right? And that's how the Bible ends, and that's how eternal glory begins. So, so be mindful. Be mindful of what God's deliverance may look like for you. And secondly, be also mindful of, of the timing of God's deliverance. Not just the form, but also the timing of God's deliverance. We have an instant gratification problem. Right? Understandably, we, we want the time of deliverance to be as close to the time of uh, when affliction uh, afflictions began. And of course, afflictions are painful. It's not wrong to hope uh, relief to come as soon as possible. But as all, all, probably all saints can testify, God's agenda is often an entirely different one than ours. Deliverance and comfort will come, but they're not Amazon packages, and they may not come today. And so it requires our patient endurance, perseverance, 
awaiting. Waiting is the humble forsaking of our own need for instant gratification and submission to God's timing, uh, time of relief and fulfillment. Waiting is a great virtue in the Christian life. Waiting is often the necessary and, and the only pathway to comfort and joy. Waiting is the best lesson uh, from the Department of Sanctification in the School of Christ. Isaiah 30, verse 18. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. And may I suggest that while we wait, we wait not idly, but love the brethren and serve the church as much as God enables you. Would you? I often find giving serving and caring for others to be the very means through which strength and comfort are administered to our souls. We're designed to find joy, fulfillment, and happiness by orienting ourselves to others. So let not your suffering become an excuse for idleness. And finally, be also mindful of our responses when God delivers. Psalm 50 verse 15 Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Job glorified God after he was restored. Hannah glorified God after he was given a son. Joseph glorified God after he was reunited with his family. Paul glorified God, sorrowful, being sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So give glory to God when he delivers you. Our final consideration of this verse Consider what is said about God's deliverance. Consider what is said about God's deliverance. Verse 19. God delivers us from all our troubles. Verse 19. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. Right? Here is a crescendo of the sweet melody of God's promise. Here is the pinnacle of his miraculous, marvelous divine pledge. If you have been up, uplifted by this promise, he takes you even higher and even further. It's as if it did not please God to just say, but the Lord delivers him. He must add, the Lord delivers him out of them all. God is saying to you, name a trouble in your life. Name, pile upon me all the troubles of your life. Pile upon me all the troubles of all the saints everywhere throughout history. I will deliver them from it all, without exception, without fail. Some final note as I conclude. If you are a suffering, uh, if you are, you are suffering as a believer and you are a member of this church, find a fellow member in this church whom you love and trust with whom you click well, as they say, uh, whom God has b- brought alongside with you. We're called to weep with those who weep. We're not designed to weep alone. If you're a member of this church and someone else finds you uh, and confides in you, you should be very thankful to God because you might, he ha- might have made you his means, uh, an instrument through which God will administer his comfort to another. So, so seek out those who are suffering. Be a friend. Be a brother to them. Be quick to listen, quick to pray, slow to speak. Listen, pray, and hug if that's your thing. I like a firm handshake more unless you're my wife. Uh, read God's word together 
I repeat, right? Consistency matters. Five minutes of contact every day is better than two hours of contact once a week. Right now, if you're a suffering Christian and you are not a member of any church, I really strongly recommend you to become a member of a gospel preaching, a loving local church. I'm saying this not because I'm big on church membership or because I think it's a matter of obedience to God. I think both are true. Um, I say this because church membership forms or puts you in a position to form strong uh, bond and connection with those whom God may use to minister comfort and joy to you. And thus, it puts you in a position uh, to receive the regular care you may need in the times of sorrow. So maybe for some of you, church membership is the first step of deliverance and comfort. And finally, if you are suffering as an unbeliever, you may be seeking all kinds of remedies or self-help, positive thinking, therapy, exercise, new hobbies, entertainment, more friendship, or even alcohol and drugs and sexual pleasures. Maybe you've even heard the therapeutic gospel that Jesus came primarily to make you feel better, less anxious and depressed. Friends, you know there's only one way. There's only one solution. I repent and believe in Jesus, his righteous life for sinners, his atoning death for sinners, his glorious resurrection for sinners. This is the only way for you to be put in the position where effective and enduring comfort for your soul may possibly come. My Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty eight still ring true today. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So come to Jesus in repentance and faith. So saints, remember Psalm 34, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us great promises in your word. It is the comfort, the hope, the joy, and the refuge of our souls. I pray for all the saints here tonight uh, as they might be going through trials that you, by your sovereign hand, are pleased to assign to them as they may be in the midst of trouble. Maybe for other saints, they are going uh, into one by your sovereignty. I pray that uh, they will remember this promise. I pray that uh, the words that you have spoken this evening, your spirit will take and impress it deeply upon the minds and the hearts of everyone here, I pray. I pray for any, uh, anyone who is apart from Christ here, I pray that you will save their souls, bring life uh, and salvation and, and a new hope in Jesus Christ to them this evening so that you may be glorified. Even the angels of heaven shall rejoice. Much more shall we give you glory. We pray. Amen.